Good morning. We'll be back in the book of Galatians. The fifth chapter. I'll just open with prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for this morning. I thank you for all these faces that I see, for the souls who you've gathered here together this morning to worship you. I thank you for Paul and his message this morning, um, the church history, for those that have come before us and suffered and learned and taught and that we have so much information that we can gain from them. I, I just praise you for that. I praise you for the history of your bride. Thank you for our musicians, for blessing us so abundantly with talented singers and musicians and just the, the many um, gifts that you've given us here in this local body. I, I thank you for that. I pray for each one of them that they would develop and use the gifts for your glory. I pray now as we enter your word here, God, that you would bring forth your truth, that we would draw closer to you, that we would know you better, that we would learn to act in a way, that we would learn to walk in the spirit, that we would learn to be led by you. In this life that we would glorify you, that other people would notice, that it would just cause even a curiosity in this dying world that we're living in, um, that people would see a difference in your people, and that it would give open doors and give opportunity for the gospel to go forth for men and women to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 5, um, and, and we're at the end of the chapter, towards the end of the chapter. The last message that I, when, I, when I taught on this, um, we learned that the gospel is basically a call to freedom. Look back at, at verse 13 and 14. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This love that he has given here is not an option. It's not a recommendation. It is a necessity. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what a Christian does. We are called to our freedom to desire and seek the happiness of others with the same zeal that we seek our own. If that sounds challenging, that's because it is. And it's actually an impossibility within yourself to love others truly as much as you love yourself. That's not natural. It might be natural for a parent to love their child that way. You might have that experience, but it's different when it's your neighbor, your coworker, your boss. It's different, right? But he says to love one another as Christ has loved the church. But if we, if we take this seriously, and we really take this as a command, it becomes very difficult in our minds. Truly caring as much about others as I do myself. The good news is, we don't have to do it on our own power. And that's where we lead to here in Galatians 5.16, the answer to this problem of loving others as ourself is here in this text. Look at verse 16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not... Fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're not called to this new commandment by ourselves. We're not called to any commandment to attain it on our own power. We can't. We can't fulfill this kind of love. This kind of love isn't natural. We must learn to walk in the Spirit. This command of love, and this is where we fall into traps so many times, the old law has passed away, so we'll look at these new commands and we'll fall into the same trap that the old law did and we'll require these 
commands to be saved. That's what the book of Galatians has been about. It's not about the law. It's not about what you do. You know, Paul was teaching this morning an equipping hour and he was talking about baptism. And he said that um, there was a big confusion at one point in time when people, when, when pastors were going apostate. They were, they were giving in to Rome and they would make a sacrifice of incense to the Roman gods. And then the question comes up is if, there, if, if that was the man who baptized you, is your baptism valid? I grew up in a way where this was a real problem because my baptism, I thought, was part of my salvation. And that becomes a real problem if the man who baptized you fell away. Well, then what about you? Well, that's all legalism. Your baptism doesn't save you. And that's where we can rest in this. The salvation is of Christ and Him alone. And it is the power of the Holy Spirit who makes that happen? The Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates your soul. And here's the thing. If he is powerful enough to do that, which is an absolute miracle, to awaken a deadened soul. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. And the Holy Spirit comes in and says, no, I make you alive. And God says, you're now mine. If he can do that, he's also powerful enough to lead us in this command of love. It happens, and this happens freely in the Spirit. When we want to love one another, this happens naturally in the Spirit. It's natural for Him. It's not natural for us. And so we must learn to walk in the Spirit. So what is it to walk in the Spirit? If you skip down to verse 18, it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. John Piper points out here, That by using the passive voice of being led, it emphasizes the Spirit's work, not ours. He could have said, if you follow the Spirit, we would still be following the Spirit. But by using this terminology, he, he is pointing out that it is the Spirit is the force. The Spirit is the power. It's more like a truck pulling a trailer, right? The trailer is attached to the truck. It has no choice of where it goes. Turn over to John chapter 15. John 15, verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The power is in the root. The power is in the vine. We're nothing but a branch. If you're attached to that vine, you will bear fruit. I I do a lot of gardening. um, And we raise a lot of squash. I love squash. So I, I, I think about this a lot of times when I'm looking at squash on the vine. Because squash is an interesting crop. You, you don't want it to get too big. You don't actually want the fruit to come to maturity. right? You want to pick it before it gets big and tough and all that. And when that squash gets going and you have a healthy plant, you can almost watch that. You can almost watch it grow. And you can think, well, it's, it's almost too big. I'll wait till tomorrow to pick. And tomorrow's too late. It's gotten too big. Why? Because as long as it is attached to that vine, it is going to grow. You cannot stop it from growing as long as it is attached to that vine. The minute you cut it, the minute you break that squash off, it will not grow another millimeter. It's done. It stops right there. That's the way we are as Christians. That's what it is to be led by the Spirit. The truck is pulling the trailer. The train is pulling, the the locomotive is pulling the train cars, right? And you follow. But who does the work? It's the truck. It's It's the locomotive. It's the one with the power. And that's how we need to learn to walk in the Spirit as Christians. The Spirit 
has the power. God, the Holy Spirit living in you, has the power to help you, to lead you, to walk this way. So to walk in the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. And what is the evidence of this? We'll see, we'll see in a minute as we go through this, the fruit of the Spirit is the positive evidence. But there's also an evidence, so we're going to see certain traits of those who are walking in the Spirit. We're going to see certain traits of those who are led by the Spirit. But we'll also see certain things that fall away from those who are being led by the Spirit. The Bible here calls it the lust of the flesh. And it does not mean necessarily that the lust has gone completely, but he says you will no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. There in verse 16. So if you walk in the Spirit, you will no longer fulfill. Because verse 17 explains to us that there is a battle going on. So the lust has not completely went away. The desires of the flesh has not completely went away. Look what it says. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. This battle, it's going on inside you. It's going on in your mind. It's going on on your soul. Turn over to Romans. It's talked about in several places. In Romans chapter 7. Verse 21. This is Paul again. He says, I find then a law that evil is that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. So he's saying, I'm I will to do good, but this evil is still there. And he says, for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Nate 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice there's one thing there. There is not this entering into walking in the Spirit, and then I'm walking in the flesh, and then I'm walking in the Spirit. No, he's saying, if you're in Christ Jesus, you walk according to the Spirit. It's not a choice. He says that, he he tells us that with his mind he serves the law of God, but with his flesh the law of sin. We're still fighting this old condemned flesh. It's going on, the battle's going on inside the Apostle Paul. And it's going on inside of us. Believers are in a state of conflict, but not a state of condemnation. Even when the conflict is the hottest, even when we are the weakest, even when we fail, we're still justified. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon, he said, when the believer has to do his utmost, even to hold his ground, when he feels that he cannot advance an inch without fighting for it, when he has to cry out in the agony of his spirit because of the vehemence of temptation, he may still lay his hand upon the word of God and say, and yet there is no condemnation to me, for I am in Christ Jesus. You are not fighting this battle alone. The same God that guided David, that guided the rock that David threw, guided it right into the forehead of the giant. The same God that stood with Daniel in the lion's den and protected him from those savage beasts. The same God that carried the cross up the hill and hung on it and received the full wrath of God is now with you. He is leading you. He led Stephen, full of power, to stand boldly and preach the truth even to his death. 
He led Paul, the one who we're reading here. He led him through multiple missionary journeys into all kinds of savage lands, into shipwreck, into beatings, and ultimately to his death. That is God. That is the Holy Spirit that we are to be led by. Let's not fight against Him. Let's let Him fight against our flesh. He will win. He will win that battle. John Piper said the Spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. Picture it, right? There's a battle going on. Here comes the Spirit comes in to do the battle for you. And so take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. Because if your soul feels like a battlefield, that's a sign that there is a battle going on. Because unbelievers, those who are dead in their sins, don't battle against it. They hide it. And don't mistake that battle of you trying to hide your sin as a battle that's going on trying to overcome sin. There's been many... the. the, the Road to hell is paved with people who do that. But we want to be on that narrow road in which the Spirit is fighting the battle for us. And so the question here as we go on into the chapter is who are you led by? He has given us some very clear descriptions of two types of people here. Led by the Spirit or led by the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're very clear. This is not rocket science. They're evident. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, Drunkenness, revelries, and the like. He lists them pretty specifically here. And I was, I was not going to go through these one by one. But I feel like it's necessary. But before we get to that point, I want you to examine yourself. The man who never strives against sin. Or who does not even recognize that he or she has sin probably knows nothing about the spiritual life. If you do not have inward pain when the sin is committed, if you have no remorse or convictions over your thoughts or the evil intentions of your heart, if your soul is not a battlefield, it is probably a playground for these that we've listed here. If that's the case... And very well may be abiding in death. And if you're abiding in death, then judgment is coming. And I pray to God that you would hear this this morning and that God would open your eyes. But these specific sins all characterize unredeeming mankind living under the commands of the law. And it produces only iniquity. And so these people may not exhibit all of these sins, and this list is not exhaustive, it doesn't cover them all, but it, it encompasses kind of the general areas of those who would walk after the lust of the flesh. And the reason I thought um, I should probably cover each one is because we're living in a time when people don't know a natural, there's not, it's not a cultural thing anymore to know what sin is. I was talking to a brother a few years ago, and he, he had led a couple to Christ. And he really felt like they were born again, and he was discipling them. And through that discipleship, he realized they were living together, and they were unmarried. And they had no idea that that was wrong. Twenty years ago in the state of Oklahoma, that was pretty general thoughts. Thirty years ago, for sure, people knew that premarital sex was a sin according to the Bible. But that's not the case today. And so I wanted to go through each one individually just to make sure that everybody understands 
if Paul listed them specifically, then I'm going to go through them specifically. So he starts with adultery. This is basically sex outside of an existing marriage. Right? If you're married and you have sex with another that's not your spouse, that's adultery. If you are unmarried and you have sex with somebody who is married, that's adultery. That's pretty clear and it's pretty wrong. Not pretty wrong, it's extremely wrong. And it's a sin against the holy God. The next one he names is fornication. Very closely related to adultery. It actually comes from the Greek word pornea. You can probably figure out what what word we get from that. Pornography. It is a basically a sexual activity outside of marriage. And then he goes on, and these, these first four are basically dealing with the human sexual conduct. Uncleanness is the word used in the New King James. And it basically means brash sexual impropriety. It's like fornication, but worse. Right? It's like taking it a step further. Um, and then you have lewdness from the Greek word aselgia, which means unbridled lust. It's not being able to tame your sexual desires. It's not being able to control them. Do we have a problem with this in our culture today? You have no idea. Well, you may have an idea. But I'm telling you, I mean, Paul and I, we go grab a Coke about every day and we pull back in. There's a break and we pull back in. And most every day there's two, what are they, 15, 14, 13, something like that. Your old girls hugging on each other about to go to class. And this is not like the typical 13-year-old girl, oh, I'm so happy to see you hug, okay? This is lewdness. It's unbridled lust. That's in Stratford, Oklahoma. I can I can only imagine what it's like in other parts of the state, other parts of the country, but it's not that hard to figure out. Look at the entertainment. Look at what we call entertainment, what we accept as a culture. It's full of this lewdness, uncleanness, fornication, adultery is celebrated in the movies. Just watch a romantic movie and see if you don't if if the idea of the film is to get you to side with the the one who's not a spouse. It happens all the time because the spouse is kind of a jerk. And so there's this other guy who's really nice and he's the romantic one and he comes in and, and you'll find yourself rooting for him. Because they write the script to do that. Why? Because they serve their father, the devil. And we get caught up in it. And Paul's saying, do not. Do not follow these. These are the one, this is the, this is the mark of those who lust after the flesh. So these first four terms encompass the sexual sins of human life. They include basically all illicit sexual activity, adultery, premarital sex. Homosexuality, bestiality, incest. And it's an amazing thing. Those are all listed specifically in the scriptures. Why? They're sinful. They're not in God's design. He has given us the sexual pleasures within the confines of marriage to enjoy. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But outside of that, it is an extremely sinful thing. So that's the first four. We move on. The next word he gives. um, Verse 19, or actually verse 20. He says idolatry. It's the worship of an image. We see it a lot in the Old Testament. We go into the paganism of the Old Testament and we see them building stone gods. We see them building gold gods. We see them building all kinds of things and calling them gods. And you can see it in cultures today where they actually use 
idolatry like brazen images, right? There's still many, many people in this world today that are practicing idolatry in that exact sense. Um, Hinduism. We, we, we did a, I think it was during our school of ministry, or it may have been when Godwin was here. I can't remember. Godwin is our missionary in India. But they showed a picture of um, Tom Brady's locker. Most people know who Tom Brady is, although he's getting old, he's still playing. But one of the best quarterbacks ever, probably. And it showed a picture of his locker, and he had an elephant idol in there. He's actually a practicing Hindu. So it's right here in our culture as well, just that specific, that idolatry. But here's the other thing about idolatry. It doesn't have to be a brazen image for it to become idolatry. It is a God you have made to suit yourself. Do we have a problem with that today? Within the professing church, within professing Christians, do we have anybody creating a God that suits themselves? You better believe it. Just ask somebody, well, the God God I serve would never send somebody to hell. That's true. You know why? Because that God doesn't exist. You just made him up in your mind. You can hear all kinds of things. The true God, the God of the Bible, will send people to hell. He will send many to hell. And it's going to be quite the wake-up call when they get there. Isn't that what Jesus said? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, there are many here, there are many among us today, not necessarily here, but in our culture, in our world, who have, who fully think they're serving God. And they're deceived. They're practicing idolatry. The next word, sorcery. From the Greek word, pharmakia. It's where we get the word pharmacy. The the King James, if you have a King James Bible, it uses the word witchcraft here. Basically what this is talking about is any type of religion that is using demonic power. And a lot of them, a lot of pagan religions use drugs. And this is why we use the word pharmakia here, pharmacy. But it's talking about mind-altering drugs, right? And there's a lot of that that goes on and has went on. For centuries, where people use a mind-altering drug to summon up demons. Um, they use hallucinogens to have visions, right? That's actually a Native American culture. Go on a vision quest. They use peyote before they go. Then they have these visions. Oh, that's amazing. You, had, you took in a hallucinogen and then you had a vision. I would not trust that vision, but people do it like crazy. Um, as a matter of fact, this is one of the big, big things that scares me so much about meth. Um, if you've ever known anybody that have dealt with meth, maybe you have. But anybody that's ever been involved with meth, it does terrible things to your body, yes. Just like any drug does, and it is incredibly addictive, and it, it will absolutely destroy your life. But I've talked to people that were got caught up into it, and they have seen and, and experienced things in the spiritual realm, that are absolutely terrifying. It is a gateway into a spiritual realm. It opens the mind, and many of these drugs, many of these um, mind-altering drugs and alcohol will do it too. If you use too much of it, they open the mind to the spiritual realm and invite in evil spirits. It happens. Sorcery. And then that's where a lot of pagan religions come from. Things like necromancy, speaking to the dead. You think, well, I don't, that, that, is that really a, people really do that? Well, look into the word of faith movement a little bit. Many of them claim to get their power from dead uh, preachers that came before them. I can't remember their names or I would tell you, but I don't remember their names. But also, right here in Ada, Oklahoma, my wife was taking a librarian class. And the head of the library department at Ada at the time, she is not there no longer. Don't The lady that's there wouldn't do this. But the one that was there at the time was having a class. 
And they were meeting at the cemetery and they were going to do this very thing. I asked my wife to find out when it was. I was going to go hide behind the tombstones and talk to them and stuff. But <laughs> she, would, she wouldn't tell me. So <laughs> we could get a good message across, you know. But, but yeah, it happens. It's happening right here in Ada, Oklahoma. I, I got, the only time I've ever been rode up, I've, I've taught for 18 years, and the only, ever, the only time I've ever been rode up at school was for this, was this very verse, because I gave some Bibles to some kids. There was a Christian in, in my class, and he was, he was, um, he was, he was very different, um, as far as his mentality goes. Smart kid, but he had been through a lot, but he was, he was born again, and, he would come talk to me a lot about the Bible and stuff, but he had some friends that uh, were getting into witchcraft. And he came to me and he goes, what do you think of witchcraft? And I said, well, it's evil and wicked and we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And he goes, yeah, I thought so too. I said, well, who's telling you different? He tells me who they are and he says, they were saying that, you know, Moses used witchcraft because they turned the, he turned his staff into a snake and things like that. And I said, okay. And so I was just praying about it. And, and it's like God showed me, look, these kids need the word. And so I didn't have them in class, but I, I found, I had some Bibles and I just highlighted this verse, stuck a million dollar bill gospel track in it to market and, and gave it to them. And uh, imagine this. They didn't like that. It got, it kind of became a big deal and, they um, they reprimanded me at the time, and then later there was a threat of a lawsuit. And I told them, I said, if you need, you got to do whatever you got to do. You know, if you need to write me up, you need to, you know, reprimand me publicly. Then do that to, you know, I don't want the school getting in trouble for this. This is on me. So that's what happened. But the point is, this is a spiritual battle that's going on. And he names sorcery specifically. There's these pagan religions. That are going on. And I actually had the thought whenever I was praying and I thought, okay, I'm going to give them this Bible. And I thought when they open that Bible, I I had a picture in my mind. That there's demons watching this and they're going to shudder. And they will shudder over the word of God. And they will shudder at the face of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened. They were scared. Why? Because they know God. They believe he's there, and when he shows up, they get scared. And that's what we got to look at as we're looking to learn to walk in the Spirit. So that's sorcery. Then, he, then I'm going to skip to heresy here because it kind of goes in the group with religious um, sins. Um, heresies. These are bad principles and tenets relating to doctrine. John Gill said this, they spring from a corrupt and carnal mind and are propagated with carnal views as popular applause, worldly advantage, and indulging the lusts of the flesh. Heresies. Where do they come from? They come from men a lot of times trying to get power. If I can twist this scripture here and twist this scripture there, then I become in charge. I become... The lone guy in charge. Not only can I be in charge of a body, I can be in charge of two. Oh, wait, I can be in charge of five. And pretty soon you're, you've got a man trying to be in charge of the entire church of Rome. Right? Heresies. And they sneak in. They're subtle. Just like Gil said, they, but they spring from a corrupt and carnal mind. They're not from the Scriptures, but they're from the twisted Scriptures. Next one. Now he gets into how we deal with other people. The sins that we have when dealing with others. The first one mentioned is hatred. An internal hatred of any man, even our enemies, is forbidden. Jesus said, if you've hated your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Hatred is a serious thing. Then he goes to contentions, fighting and quarreling. Another word would be scolding. This is forbidden. These, these 
fights over frivolous things especially are forbidden. And I think that the church needs to be warned on this one in particular. This is not just talking about when we're talking one-on-one. This is also talking about when we're on the internet. If you want to see, I mean, it's not hard to find contentions on Facebook. It is terrible. And we are falling prey to it. We're falling into it. And so I'm warning you, let's stay out of that stuff. And it's, trust me, I I have the, you don't know how many times I've typed out a big long thing and said, delete it. And And there's been times when I didn't delete it. And I had to repent later. And it causes just this turmoil within us when that stuff's going on, doesn't it? That's because we're not, we shouldn't be doing it. That doesn't mean you can't be uh, having a civil debate. And if you're really caring about the other people that you're talking to, that's different. But there's so many times that's not what we're doing. There's so many times we just want to be right. We're just going to prove ourselves right. If you really care about the person. And, and the other thing, always remember, you have no idea who's reading that. And you're the Christian here. And these non-believers are reading it and thinking, man, that seems pretty harsh. Seems pretty condescending. If you really care about the person that you're talking to, a private message is probably a much better place to take care of that. Jealousies. Coveting after things others have. Wanting it. Wanting it so bad that in your mind you would do anything for it. There's restraints, but your mind has already coveted. You're jealous of that person. Here's another, here's another thing that falls into this. Have you ever been upset at somebody else's success to the point where you wanted them to fail? You would never say it, or maybe you would. But you start wishing. I remember when I was in high school, I, I quit football. I had, I had legitimate reasons to quit. But after I quit, I found myself, and I was an unbeliever too, but I found myself wanting them to lose. I really wanted them to lose. Why? I was jealous. There was a, lot of, there was a big part of me that still wanted to be playing, And as long as they were losing, I wouldn't have to feel bad about that. That's evil. That's wicked. Wishing somebody else failure to make yourself feel better, that's sin. It's wicked. Outbursts of wrath. Violent emotions of the mind. Anger outbursts in uncontrollable ways. Obviously, we should have better control of ourselves than that. We should have better control. And everybody points to Jesus, driving them out of the temple. That was not an outburst of wrath. That was a very calculated, thought-out process. And he has righteous anger. You know, we, we talk about righteous anger. Well, but it's okay if you have righteous anger. To have righteous anger, you've got to be righteous. It's very, very difficult for us to have righteous anger. We have anger over righteous things, but most of the time when we're having real anger, we've already passed the threshold. Jesus had righteous anger. And if we have it, it is absolutely only by the power of the Holy Spirit in his leading. And it will be controlled. Selfish selfish ambitions. The, the Greek word here is arethia, and it means work for hire. Similar to a mercenary. That would be the language that we see here. It's to hire out with no thought of others. It's only for personal gain. You're a hireling. You'll do whatever it takes as long as it benefits you. That's selfish ambitions. And then dissensions. Divisions are those who cause divisions. And it does not say... Just in the church, although it would obviously apply there. Causing divisions in the church, obviously listed here as a lust of the flesh. But this includes matters in the home. And this also includes matters in public, in the the civil world. 
Are you causing divisions? Unnecessarily divisions. At work, at school, in the public square, in politics, among the police force, at church. And then we move on to verse 21. Envy. Very similar to jealousies, wishing evil on others or desiring what they have, wishing you were them. That's something that I think we have to really watch out for, especially among young people. They'll think, man, I wish I wish I was that person. I wish I was in their shoes. Well, there's two things there. First of all, you don't even know what their shoes are really like. It may not be as good as you think. And secondly, God has placed you where he has placed you for a reason. You should live there. Murders. It's exactly what it says. Taking the life of another. Drunkenness. Drinking too much alcohol and altering the mind. Strictly forbidden. And if you think it, if you're wondering, here's just a little warning to you. If you're wondering if it's too much, it is. Nobody ever had to ask, is it okay to pray? So let's keep that in mind whenever it comes to consuming alcohol. And then you have revelries. And Paul Paul was talking this morning about the big party that went on in the, what was that, 300 so? That was basically, I thought, that's that's basically what a revelry is. It's many of the other sins that we've already listed, and let's get together at night and do them together. That's revelry. That's partying it up. We'd call it partying today. Or we might call it rioting today. I think that is exactly what we see in the streets right now when a peaceful protest turns into violence. The mob mentality, when you get a bunch of people together and all of a sudden they get extremely bold and start doing all kinds of sin, that's revelry. He's saying stay away from that. You won't even have a desire for that. You shouldn't even have a desire for that. But we do sometimes. But here's what he says at the end of verse 21. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's not a battle going on if they practice those things. Practice is talking about doing it. It's a regular basis. You're practicing them. Kind of like you would practice law or practice medicine. It is a common occurrence. And if you're practicing these things, there is not a battle going on inside your soul. And if there's not a battle going on inside your soul, you are walking completely to fulfill the lust of the flesh, and you are not a child of God. Now, you notice it doesn't say struggles with these things, because I would be willing to wager that everybody in here struggles with something that I listed today. If that's why there's a battle going on. But it's the struggle, right? It doesn't say occasionally commits such things. It doesn't say occasionally falls into this or that. Because I don't want to leave you hopeless. I don't want to make you think that just because you have struggled with one of these or fell here or fell there that you're hopeless. No, it's just like Spurgeon said. You can trust in the Word of God because He has redeemed you. But it's looking to find out what your reaction is when you do fall. Is there a repentance? Is there a conviction? Is there a desire to not do it the next time? They're part of a lifestyle if you practice them and they stand condemned. Now look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Yes, we finally come to the opposite. Let's get to the positive, right? What does a man, what does a woman look like that is being led by the Spirit? They look like this. They have love for one another. 
The very first one he mentions there is love. Many times it's an unexplainable love that only God can accomplish. We should strive to have that for one another. We should strive to have that for other people. Love them. Love them. It is an action. It is a choice that we must make. And we can do it only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter who they are. And it doesn't matter that they have a different, different political ideas than you. We should love them. And it doesn't matter if they're not a believer. We need to have love for them. Love enough to tell them the truth. And it does not mean they're going to love you back. Not every time. But if they're a believer, they should. We should have within Christ's church, it should be overly evident. It should be an amazing thing for the world to look at and go, wow. You know, those people don't really have anything in common other than they go to that church, you know. But wow, they really do care for each other. We should strive for that. And then it says, um, joy. What does someone look like that is walking after the flesh, that is being led, I mean, walking after the Spirit, that's being led by the Spirit? They have joy in the midst of trials. They have joy when they're stressed. They have joy at home and at work because that joy is a testimony to Jesus Christ. You know, I went to a funeral on Friday and I knew the lady, I mean, I didn't know her real well. But um, I found out at the funeral, I didn't realize this, the entire time I knew her, she had cancer, brain cancer. She died at the age of 37. And um, for the last eight years, she's been fighting this brain cancer. And I thought, that is incredible. Because every time I ever saw her, every time I ever talked to her, she was full of joy. And she was saved. Uh, they, they had testimony of that at the funeral. And I thought... What a testimony to know she basically knew she was dying the entire time I knew her. And every time I saw her, she, she probably had more joy than most people that I know. That's how we should be. That's the joy that we're talking about. Peace in the midst of a storm. A Christian's mind is at ease in all situations because they trust in God's sovereignty. We're in, a, we're in a time of extreme uncertainty. Paul talked this morning about uh, when, when the Roman Empire started to collapse. A lot of Christians began to get uneasy because they're like, this is the, basically they thought the Roman Empire was going to spread Christianity around the world. I see a lot of parallels with that now. A lot of Christians are still kind of in denial, like, well, the United States isn't going to collapse. Hmm. There's a very good chance it does. There, we are in extremely uncertain times when, when you're talking about politically speaking, world economy, all these things. And yet, we need to be the ones to stand with joy and peace because we know the God who is in control of it all. And He's going to take care of His people. And it's going to be for our good, for His glory. Absolutely, without a doubt, that's going to happen. You can see it through 2,000 years. You can see it through 6,000 years. And we can see it in the next 2,000 years if God tarries that long. He is going to, to grant us the ability to stand on a hill through whatever comes and be the light to the world. That's what he does. That's why he has left us here is to be a light to those other ones. The, the next one is long suffering with long suffering in general, long suffering with sinners. Why would we have long suffering with sinners? Why? They're so wicked. Yes, and so were we. We have been forgiven much, and why do we lose patience with those who haven't been forgiven yet? Let us have long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness. The Holy Spirit demonstrates these three traits more than we can ever understand. The very fact that we're sitting here today is an absolute example of God's kindness, 
goodness and gentleness. The very fact that we are alive and that, that even apart from salvation, God's kindness, gentleness and goodness has allowed us to live on this earth. And now he has granted us salvation. He's granted us mercy and grace. He is the example of kindness, goodness and gentleness. And he will guide us to show the same. And these things should be evident in your life. Don't be a jerk. There's so many times I'm looking at Christians and I'm thinking, don't be a jerk. Just don't be a jerk. It's not that hard. And there's times when I have to look at myself and go, what is wrong with you? Don't be a jerk. But hopefully, and he will, God will lead us to that. The next one's faithfulness. Faithfulness to God and his purposes. To his church. To his people. This faithfulness that he talks about is to his word. It's to what he's given us. He's given us his word. We should be faithful to read it. We should be faithful to study it. He's given us this amazing body, this local body of believers. And we should be faithful to attend. We should be faithful to the individuals within this body. We should be consistent in how we serve his body. We should look for ways to serve this body. We should examine our gifts. Find out what it is that you're good at. Figure out who it is that you're good at reaching out to and reach out to them. Find out what it is that God wants you to do within his church, the local body, and within his church in the world um, and, and pursue it. Be faithful to him and your family. Be faithful to your family in that as well. And then finally, he says self-control. Looking back at the list of evidences of a sinful person, most of them go back to the lack of self-control. If you will learn self-control, you will learn to overcome the lust of the flesh. And that can only be done by the power of the Spirit. But we're to demonstrate self-control in all areas of our life. You can take a good thing and you can, lose, you can lose your self-control and it can become a bad thing, right? You can You can do too much of a good thing and it takes time away from other things that are more important and it becomes a bad thing. Self-control in all areas of our life. Moderation is so important in so many things. And we are not a culture that's very moderate. We're not a culture that practices self-control very good. If you could completely devote yourself to throwing a football, you are considered elevated. The only, the only thing that really that doesn't apply to is, is studying the Word of God. That's not elevated in our culture. But anything else, if you, if you completely devote yourself to it, it's elevated. But what God is saying is have moderation, have self-control. And, of course, none of these can be accomplished apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not your fruit. If you're doing it to get some kind of credit for yourself, you have missed the complete point of this text. It is His fruit. You are the branches. It's flowing through you, and it comes out of you because of His power. And if that's the way it is working, it will work. It will succeed. If you are trying to muster it up yourself, it will fail every time. You do not have the power. Your root is not deep enough. You cannot get the nutrients that's necessary to produce these fruits. That's only by God. That's only by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 24 and 25. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Those who have been born again have put this earthly man to death. That's the point of baptism, right? We talked about immersion this morning. You're immersed. Why? To demonstrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are walking with Him in that. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. Put away the old man. Become 
a living sacrifice to Christ. Paul is saying there's no reason. There's no reason we can't walk in the Spirit. Because we live in the Spirit. And greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. And in verse 26, and we'll close. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So he kind of wraps this all up with, here's what you shouldn't look like. Here's what you should look like, and let's not... And here's the trap. Here's such the trap with Christianity and with succeeding in the Spirit and in Christ. We get to doing pretty good. What happens? Hey, look at me. I'm doing pretty good. And you get a little prideful. You get a little conceited over it. And it's a shame because you didn't even do it. All the good that comes through you is 100% from Christ. It's 100% the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God-ordained. It is He that works in you for His good pleasure. And remember that. We must remember that. And this is where to avoid from getting conceited. I've said this before. If you want to avoid getting prideful in basketball, if I want to get prideful in basketball, I can play my youngest daughter, Hannah. I can beat her. I can look pretty good. If I, want, if I start thinking that I'm pretty good and I go up against Michael Jordan, even though he's old, he's still... I would find out real quick, I'm not near as good as I thought I was. It would crush my pride, right? So you start thinking you're pretty good. You start thinking you're doing pretty good. You're living a pretty good life. All you have to do is compare yourself to Christ. And you'll find out real quick, you're nothing. But you're everything with Him living in you, with the Holy Spirit living in you, with Him working through you, you're everything. But he's the one that gets the glory. He's the one that gets the credit. So again, we have the fruits of the Spirit, the good things, and then we have the opposite of that. Provoking one another and envying one another. There's no place for that in the body of Christ. That is not what love looks like. Love looks like I want the best for you. No matter what. And if I have to take a step back so that you can have a a place, then I should do that. And if if I have a disagreement with you, I'm going to come to you in love. Not provoking you to anger, but lovingly approaching that. And, And to squash all sorts of pride. If you love Christ, then you must love His bride. That's the bottom line. If you tell me you love me, I'm your good friend, but you can't stand my wife, guess what? We're not friends. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. God is the same way. Jesus is the same way. You cannot love Jesus and not love his bride. He has chosen his bride. He has set his affection on her. And if you're born again, that means you are in her. He has set his affection on you, and you cannot love him without loving her. And this can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. and For sending him as a comforter to us, sending him as our guide, as our power. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to submit. You would help us. Trust in that power and to not lean on our own power, to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you, Lord. And, and God, I, help, I pray that you would help us in each one of these areas. And I pray if there's anyone here who is struggling with one of those sins that is mentioned, that you would help them to see it clearly. That you would help them to expose it, confess it, and overcome it. God, and I pray that if anyone is struggling with not showing one of the fruits of the Spirit, that you would help, that you would grant the power and that you would make that fruit evident in their life. And that it would be a radical change and that you would 
that you would change us as individuals and change us as a body that we would better serve you, better glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.